Turn to the book of Ezekiel. We're going to be reading just a passage from Ezekiel here in just a moment. And uh, I've already mentioned it's Dad's Day, it's Father's Day, and trust if you're a dad, you're feeling mightily affirmed. I was uh, affirmed in some really wonderful, meaningful ways uh, by my children. Um, got a nice note from uh, my son who's away in the mail, and, and then also got it posted on my Facebook page. So that's always nice to have my world kind of see that affirmation. So I guess that ought to be what Facebook is used for, isn't it? A little affirmation here and there. And uh, that was great. And of course, uh, from Tyler and Kaylin getting uh, affirmation from them. And by the way, they got me this incredible Carolina USC Gamecock like golfing shirt. Now I knew I knew just by saying that I was going to divide the congregation at that moment. I mean, but it's the high dollar. I mean, embroidered. I mean, it's nice. I mean, it is really, really nice. Now, I want you to also know that I believe it was my daughter that got me. Did you not get me the Carolina cup? You got me the Carolina cup, right? And I, I use that cup for coffee every day. Do I not? And I want you to know that I get a lot of good nature gigging from Clemson fans when they see me walking around with my Carolina cup. And I just want you to know that, you know, I'm not an original South Carolinian. I've lived here now 21, almost 22 years. And uh, so I have no real dog in the football hunt. Uh, when Carolina is playing, I... I root for Carolina, and when Clemson's playing, I've rooted for Clemson. I, I understand that that sounds like schizophrenia to football fans in this state. I understand that. But um, I'm amazed at how the Carolina fans have just blessed me. <laughs> oh, see, I'm just telling you, if people give me a bad time about my cup, I look at them and say, get me a Clemson cup, and I'll give you equal time. I mean, I tell you what, we're going to, hey, we may have a difficult time rooting, at least I will, for who comes out of the College World Series, won't we? Because both of our teams got there, which speaks well for both those programs. So anyway, that's just going around in my house, and I just thought I would mention that before the congregation. Hopefully that's, uh, that's not misconstrued as manipulating for a golf shirt. So anyway. Father's Day. I started to pray for you guys, and I asked myself what God would want me to do to honor you. I do want to esteem the men. Being one, I understand all the dynamics of manhood. I get it. I also get our nature to be responsive with God and how we work in that area, and so I'm going to challenge you a little bit in that area as well. And I want to pray for all the men in particular at the end of our message this morning. But I entitled the message, Will the Real Men Please Stand Up? Will the Real Men Please Stand Up? And don't worry, ladies, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have something I'm sure that the Lord will speak to you as well. But if you have your Bibles and you're in Ezekiel, find the 22nd chapter quickly, if you could please. Ezekiel 22. I'm going to read to you just one verse. Ezekiel 22, I'm going to read to you verse 30. It's a familiar verse I know to many of you. 
The prophet is finding himself prophesying at a difficult time in Israel's history. The prophet Ezekiel is having to be a voice of the Lord in the midst of some really challenging days in the, in the history of the nation. And this is what the Lord says. This isn't just Ezekiel writing, but this is the Spirit of God speaking through the prophet. And this is what the Lord says. Verse 30, So I sought for a man. He didn't say I sought for people. Did he? Didn't say he was looking for just anyone. He said I sought for a man among them who would make a wall Stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land or on behalf of the destiny that was before the nation. That I should not destroy it. But I found no one. Looked for a man to make a wall to stand in the gap that I would not destroy the nation. But I found, the Lord says, no one. Will the real men please, please stand up? Now, in Ezekiel's day, it might be good for you to know that the nation of Israel or the kingdom of Israel had been divided by this time. It had been divided in what we now know as the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The north had already fallen to the Assyrians. And so all that was left of what we would know as the nation of Israel was what would be called at times in the Bible, Judah. Here in the southern kingdom, Judah, we're finding the Babylonians getting prepared to lay siege to that city. And we ultimately will know that as the Babylonians are coming to attack the southern kingdom, we know that they will be successful and Jerusalem will ultimately fall. And you can only imagine these moments right before the collapse of their nation, how the country would be in disarray. Families are torn apart and scattered. Even Ezekiel's own wife, interestingly enough, during this time period, this this terrible time period, his own wife dies. And so the prophet himself, Ezekiel, has little to be optimistic about. He's hearing the voice of the Lord. He's watching all that's going on around him in his nation. He has a personal loss that he's dealing with, with the death of his wife. And he knows that things are on its last leg and its last gasp. And as you'll study this, if you have an inkling to, you'll find that preachers and scholars have often taught and preached concerning this time period to illustrate the symptoms and marks of a nation that is collapsing. It's interesting that when you watch really the the list of how nations collapse, America is following that list almost line for line, point by point. And we could spend much time talking about its moral decay. We could, we could spend time talking about its spiritual apathy, the idolatry that had come into the nation, the greed, the pride. You would know the list of all of those things that God would declare to be, to be evil or even an abomination. He would tell us to avoid. You would know many of these things. And it would not take much of a a spiritual discernment to be able to connect the dot that if a nation were to continue to do that, after a while, that nation would ultimately fall. And all of those things were happening in Israel. And all of those things are easily applied to our current culture here in America. But what caught my attention was this simple verse that I read to you this morning that, that I just want to put out there 
because I wonder if it's not at least the start. It may be a key, but I do think it's an important thing that we can underscore today on Father's Day, and it's this. God said, I sought for a man. I sought for a man who would make a wall and stand in a gap that I might not destroy the nation, but I found no one. The Lord was looking for a man. Now, ladies, I know that you are vitally important. And uh, we underscored how important you were on Mom's Day. But I need to just for a moment talk to the men and, and ladies you can listen to about what's in his heart toward us as a gender. You see, God's not just looking for any man, but he's looking for ones, it says, who will make a wall. And stand in some gaps. Isn't that interesting? Not, not, just, not just biologically you function as a man. I mean, there are a lot of guys biologically functioning as men. But God's not just looking for biology. He's looking for gap standards and wall builders. It's interesting, in the original Hebrew, the word parets, which means gap, actually can be enumerated or elaborated to mean something that is breached and needs repaired. Now, many have interpreted the passage to be really a passage about intercession. In fact, many have looked at this passage and said to themselves, this means that we're to, we're to, to make up the gap there is, the spiritual void through prayer and, and supplication and intercession. And, and can I just say that through the years, the ladies have been known for these things. I mean, ladies have stepped up and, and many of them have hearts of intercession and, and they've learned how to pray and pray for their families and pray for their marriages. And so through the years, the ladies have oftentimes been the one that have carried the prayer burden. But I want to share with you guys that the time has come, even in our nation, that God's looking for some men. You see, our nation, our nation is incredibly divided. We're politically divided like we've never been before, where we're regionally divided west and south and north and northeast. We are racially divided. There's never been a day, I don't believe, that, that we've been more acutely sensitive to all the racial issues. Our marriages are, are finding division. Our families are being divided. There is an enemy out there that has put our nation and our households under siege, and we are incredibly close to destruction. Let me just share this with you. These are things you know, and they're not really revelational, but let me just give you a few interesting statistics. You know that one out of every two marriages divorce. That's in or out of the church. You know, the average age of divorce is now 34 with regards to men and 30-year-old with regards to women. It's interesting that in the 1960s, one out of every 10 households was led by a single mom. In 1996, four out of ten households were led by a single mom. And today, five out of ten households are led by single mothers. One million teenage girls will get pregnant this year out of wedlock. 500,000 of them will choose an abortion. It says here that 40% of all 14-year-old girls will be pregnant by the time they're 19 years old. I'm just, I'm just giving you statistics of a nation that's collapsing. 
I want to read you a story out of a book that, that I've enjoyed through the years that's entitled Point Man. Just bear with me. I, I don't often read to you, but try to lock in and listen because the story I'm about ready to read to you is one that Trace and myself have actually experienced in much the same way as the one you're fixing to hear me read to you this morning. It's written by a police officer. This is what he writes. He says the woman was crying and yelling at her husband who was standing with hands in the pockets of greasy overalls. I noticed homemade tattoos on his arm, usually a sign that someone had been in prison. I was glad that my fill unit had arrived. I stepped from my patrol car. As I walked towards the two, I could hear the woman yelling at her husband to fix whatever he had done to the car so she could leave. He made no reply, but only laughed at her with contemptuous laugh. She turned to me and asked me to make him fix the car. My fill unit broke in and we split the two up so that we could find a solution to the problem. I began talking to the husband who said that his wife was having an affair and she was leaving. I asked him if they had gone for counseling and he said that he was not interested. He went on to say that he was interested in only getting his things back. He said that his wife had hidden them from him. I asked his wife about his things and she said that she wouldn't give them to him until she got one of the three VCRs they owned. I found out later that his things consisted mostly of the narcotics he dealt in. The other officer went to the wife's car and began looking under the hood to see if he could spot the trouble. The husband walked over, took the coil from his pocket, handed it to the officer, then told his wife that she could have one of the VCRs if he could have his things. She finally agreed and went into the house. And as she entered the house, that's when I noticed. I noticed two little girls standing in the doorway watching the drama unfold. They were about eight and ten years old. Both wore dresses and clung to a cabbage patch doll. At their feet were two small suitcases. My eyes couldn't leave their faces as they watched the two people they loved most tear each other apart. The woman emerged with the VCR in her arms and she went to the car where she put it into the crowded back seat. She turned and told her husband where he could find his things. They both agreed that they had equal shares of the things that they'd accumulated in 10 years of marriage. Then I stood in unbelief. I watched the husband point to the two little girls and say to the wife, well, which one do you want? Without any apparent emotion, the mother chose the older one. The girls looked at each other as the older one picked up her suitcase and then climbed into her mother's car. I had to stand and watch as the littlest girl, still clutching her cabbage patch doll in one hand and her suitcase in the other, watched her big sister and her mother drive off. I watched as tears streamed down her face in total bewilderment. The only comfort she received was an order from her father to go into the house as he turned to talk with some friends. There I stood, the unwilling witness to the death of a family. That happens every single day in more households than you could even begin to imagine. And whether it can be turned around or not in our nation, only God knows, but this much I do know. He is looking for a man. Now, now men, I don't want you to turn me off thinking that I'm getting ready to let you have it. Don't, don't, don't misunderstand me today. That's not my purpose. That's really not my goal. Today, to be honest with you, I, I would rather start a revolution. I would rather start a movement of sorts. Maybe it could start here in our own church. 
a revolution of what real spiritual manhood looks like. You see, I know that there's a spiritual side to men. And the reason I know that there's a spiritual side to men is because I can observe certain things in our culture and know that there's something spiritual inside of a man that yearns to connect with God and ultimately do what is right. You see, I find it interesting that Islam is, is, is a religion that the men seem totally unashamed of who they are, dropping their mats six times a day, no matter where they're at or what's going on. They can be in the middle of a busy airport and they'll put their knees to the ground and their face in the floor and they'll point toward Mecca. And let everyone walk around them. And yet in Christianity, it just seems... Guys, like we struggle in this area. It seems you could, you could look at, in India, the, the Hindus, or you could go to the Orient, to Buddhism, and you go to the temples, and you go to these places, and they all seem to have a healthy representation of men. And yet, when it comes to Christianity, it always seems like, at least to me, that we have challenges. I think a part of that is due to the fact that our concept of manhood and fatherhood is flawed. I think somehow we've sort of been hoodooed or we've been, we've been tricked into thinking that somehow manhood means something different than what it really means. I think the media has twisted some things. Now, I want to play a little game with you this morning, and I'm going to put some dads on the screen overhead. And I just want you to tell me if you can, uh, who these dads are and their famous dads all through uh, television history. And I, I suspect you'll know many of them. Guys, are you ready? Who's that? Andy Griffith. What was his dad's uh, dad name? Andy Taylor. You remember Andy? And it was Opie, remember? And Aunt B. Wasn't Andy always a good dad? I mean, he always knew what to say to Opie at just the right moment. I remember watching all of those and, and Andy was always a good dad. Who's next? Archie Bunker, he's a dad though, wasn't he? Who was his daughter? Gloria, son-in-law. Meathead, that's what everybody, everybody remembers. Wasn't it? But Archie, Archie epitomized, did he not? Some, some form of manhood. Who's next? How many of you can remember his name, his stage name, his dad name? What was his first name? Heathcliff Huxtable. And wasn't he another dad that just seemed to know what to do at the right moment with all of his kids? Sure enough. Go ahead. Next one. Now, some of you may not know this, but you young people ought to know this. Who, who is that? Whose dad is that? Miley Cyrus. And what was her TV name? Hannah Montana's dad. That's right. I don't even know if I know what his name was on TV. You remember? Robbie Ray, Robbie Ray, Billy Ray. All right. Next. Danny Tanner. What was his real name? Bob Saget. That's right. What what show was he on? Full House. And remember, he's a single dad with the two other guys trying to raise up all those women. God bless him in that household. All right. Who's next? Danny Thomas. Now, some of you would never remember that. What show was he on? 
Make room for daddy. See, Ed's hollering out here. Ed, Ed remembers. That's right. Make room for daddy. I don't even know that I know his name. What was his name? Anybody know that, Ed? You know? Danny Williams? How about that? You're good, dude. All right. He is another dad. Who's that? Dick Van Dyke. I know that's a color photo, but do you remember when the black and white shows? And what was his name? Rob Petrie. That's right. And what was the son's name? Richie. That's right. Wasn't Rob pretty good? Yeah. Okay, well, we got to go to the next one here. That was Fred McMurray. You don't remember my three sons? Oh, my. The congregation is young. My three sons, and, and again, a single dad raising up a family. Have I got more in there? What was he famous for? Jed, Jed Clampett. Even in his country ways. That's another dad out there. <laughs> oh, what about Jim? I don't know. What about Jim? Jim's right up there with Archie, I think, in his view of, of husbandry and fatherhood. That's right. That was Ben Cartwright, and he had three sons again. Isn't that interesting? Single dad raising up three sons. Are you. Paul. <laughs> Charles Engels. Remember Charles Engels and, 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 and his family on the frontier? Is that it, guys? Or is, oh! What about Raymond? What about Raymond? You can still see reruns of what about Raymond or everyone loves Raymond. And who is this? Ward Cleaver. And who is his son? The Beaver. And everybody uses that, don't they? The Leave it to Beaver kind of household him and his wife is is that it those are pictures of dads all through the years now some of those dads are really good and probably we could learn a lot from those dads but there were a couple of them i threw on the screen overhead that if i could just somehow have you avoid them that would be the best thing that could happen to you but the point i'm trying to make is is that as a congregation, we can throw out these names and we remember some shows and you probably have favorite shows with regards to some of them. But can you imagine the impact media has had with regards to forming or forging fatherhood? Truth is, I'm not sure, though, even after running all those faces, that we really have a grasp at what Christian manhood really is. I don't I don't think we have a good understanding of what that is. And if we don't know as adult men what it is, how can we begin to be what God is looking for? And listen to me, guys, if we don't know what that means to be a Christian man, then how can we somehow impart that to a generation of sons? Do you think they're going to learn it by osmosis? Do you think... They're going to learn it from their friends. Do you think they're going to watch TV and learn the right picture? Hear me now. If our sons are going to learn manhood, and listen, if our daughters are going to be able to pick husbands wisely, are you following me? 
You and I have got to present something to them that they can begin to have an accurate picture of what it is our daughters should be looking for and what our sons should be aspiring for. Now, let me go through this real quick. And hopefully it'll encourage you because I know many of you are doing the very things I'm going to be talking about. First off, let's talk about what men are not. What men are not. Number one, we are not to be bigoted male chauvinists. Archie Bunker is not what we're aspiring for. Archie is not the, the one we, we look to. You, we, you know, I remember there were people who looked at Archie and thought that was for real. And that was satire. They were, they, Norman Lear was making a joke out of that. But unfortunately, oftentimes, men tend to have the view that he had. In other words, you call your wife dingbat, you come in, plop yourself in your chair, nobody else gets your chair, you pontificate about all the world's problems, never doing anything by yourself, and, and you look at everything just a little bit beneath who you are. We're not to be bigoted male chauvinists. Now listen, guys, God calls us to leadership and God calls us to headship. But just because you're the leader and just because you're the head doesn't mean you're Archie. You see, our roles and our job descriptions as men and women are very different, but they're both extremely vital. So ladies, don't try to make your men more like you. You don't want a man who acts like a woman. But you do want a man that acts godly. And we're not to be bigoted male chauvinists. That's number one. Number two, we're not to be know-it-alls. Because we are men, we think that we're genetically born with knowledge to everything. At, at men, I will, I will grant you, at times, we, we, we may know more about cars because cars tend to interest young boys. We may know a little bit more about the yard because we tend to be the yard tenders. In fact, I'll even grant men a little expertise in the barbecue area because we're the ones standing over the hot barbecue. However, just because you know a few things maybe about your barbecue doesn't mean you know all things about being a chef. So don't belittle your wife or your kids or anyone who may know a little bit more than you do. Don't be a know-it-all. And then number three, men are not to be wimpy or cowards. Put the quote on the screen. This is from Dr. Laura Schlesinger. She is a, a right now, she's a, she's a radio personality, but for years she was a, 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 a psychiatrist. And um, it's interesting what she says. She says, I cannot tell you how many times I've had to remind men that they are men. It's not about biology. It's about strength, honor, courage, leadership, sacrifice, compassion, and love. You're the man. And the reason I think in our current culture we're having gender confusion, and what I mean by that is, is that you've got You've got women who are experimenting with, with lesbian experiences. You've got men who are moving into homosexual or transgender or transvestite expressions even. And, and I think part of it is because we're not calling men to be men. I think, I think women that, that want to find some experience even in a lesbian experience is because they've been hurt or wounded by men. And I can I just say this, I think men sometimes that succumb to homosexual expression is because they carry a father wound and have not been loved appropriately by men. 
And so it all boils down to, guys, that you and I are the key to putting our nation in order again. Because if the men get in order, then suddenly I believe the nation, as, as most specifically, I think, though, your family will be in order and then the nation. So what's the kind of man God is looking for? What's the kind of man God is looking for? Truth is, in the Bible, we find some fairly tough and rugged individuals. And they were incredibly spiritual men. I mean, I mean, can I just suggest to you Abraham, who was known as a rancher, he was rich, he was wealthy. L let me tell you guys, there's nobody in this room that was as wealthy as Abraham. I mean, he had money. Uh, he, had, he, he was a farmer. He tended to sheep. It was rough, sweaty work. And when the moment came that God spoke to him about his family, the Bible says that in order to receive an inheritance, he went to a land that he knew not, not knowing where he was going. In other words, he could hear from God and he had the ability, despite all of his holdings, to let go of it in order to follow the voice of God. How about Noah? Noah was a construction worker, obviously, because he had to build an ark. And he built an ark with nobody's help. But yet he heard God speak to him about rain. And at that time, nobody even knew what rain was. It had never rained on the earth prior to the days of Noah. And so he's building an ark and the people are asking him what's going on. And Noah said, God told me it was going to rain. And all the people said, what's rain? And he said, well, you're soon to find out. And they all laughed at him. And yet he was tough enough of an individual to forget the scorn, to forget the to forget all the, 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 the things and words that were thrown at him and, and he could build it and obey God. David, most people don't know this, that David, the king, was a great musician. The Bible says that he was a great musician. But not only was he a great musician, but do you remember he was the only one as a teenager that would go out and face Goliath with five smooth stones and a sling. David was the one that led the nation of Israel into battle. Let me tell you, David may have known how to play a few licks on his guitar, but he was out front when the war started as well. There were mighty men all through the Scriptures. The mighty men were the ones that surrounded David. They were like the green beret of that era. Just read sometime the stories of the mighty men. About Eleazar the Dodo. What a name. I always thought about that. That was, that was what the Bible says his name was. Eleazar the Dodo. Don't you know you'd had to have been tough to go to school? And in kindergarten, you're all telling your name. My name's Eleazar Dodo. You could see. And in junior high, they'd have been ruthless. But what does the Bible say about Eleazar the Dodo? It said that he had a barley patch. A pea patch. It wasn't very big, but it was his. And he got him a big stick and it said hundreds of Philistines were trying to attack his piece of land. And the scripture says he beat off all of those Philistines with the, with the help of God. He beat them all off his property. I'd say that's one tough dude right there. Benaniah, it says of him that on a snowy day, he jumped into a pit and he fought a lion. Think about that. The lion was in the pit. It wasn't like you came up on the lion or like the lion jumped on you. It's like he saw a lion in a pit and he decided, oh, a lion in a pit. I guess I'll just jump in and wrestle him. I'd say that was one tough old boy. That's UFC fighting before UFC was in. Elijah was the national spokesman for God. As he stood at Mount Carmel declaring the word of the Lord, these guys were tough old boys. There wasn't any, there wasn't any woman wussy person here. These guys were tougher than us. I'll assure you of that. And we've been fooled as men 
by what many have tried to saddle with what a spiritual man looks like. Now, I think if I could just take a moment to tell you, I think the picture of Jesus has been most twisted. In fact, let me just talk to you about this corrupted picture of Jesus. Let me just tell you kind of what the picture of Jesus is currently. It's a totally inaccurate picture of the type of man Jesus was in the Bible. Yes, we have these bracelets now, don't we, that say WWJD. What would Jesus do? And you know, here's, here's the sad part, is that we put on these braces, uh, bracelets that say WWJD, what would Jesus do? And we think that Jesus was a doormat. We think Jesus was just this sort of prissy guy who just sort of had this effeminate side, who just sort of just yielded and, 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 and just sort of had a lackadaisical or laid back sort of disposition. Let, let me tell you something. I, I think that's so twisted of who Jesus really was. Now, I understand the world will twist a lot of things about Jesus. They'll try to convince us that he wasn't born of a virgin. They'll try to convince us that the resurrection wasn't real. And, uh, and uh, even in other ways, doctrinally, they'll try to get them all twisted up. But in the church, I think the church has done the greatest disservice in messing up the picture of Jesus. It's like he's this easily pushed around guy. He never gets upset. I, I call him the bearded woman. That's sort of what we've created Jesus to be. He's like the ultimate Mr. Nice Guy. I was reading through a book by author Dorothy Sayers who writes these words. She says, we have efficiently declawed the lion from the tribe of Judah and made him a fitting household pet for pious old ladies. I submit to you that's not only wrong, but that insinuation, I believe, men, has kept us from linking up with Jesus. You see, this picture of Jesus leads to a corrupted picture of manhood. You see, it's assumed today that women are more spiritual than men. It's a generally accepted notion that somehow women need religion more or women are just more spiritually attuned than men are. Yet there is not one scripture that can support that perception. Now, we may express our spirituality in different ways because they're women and we are men. But let me just say, men in the Bible were spiritual. So let's talk about Jesus for just a minute. And let me make sure you understand who it is that we're calling you to rise up and link up with. Did Jesus have a compassionate side? Did he have a side that exercised great grace? Of course he did. But Jesus was as strong a man as you will find, and he never compromised the truth. In fact, I'm just going to run a list down here. Guys, put this up here. Consider the following. Number one, Jesus was not above losing his cool on matters of significance. I mean, I mean, when he saw the temple being prostituted because of money changers who were ripping people off and taking advantage of the poor and travelers. Can I just say this? Jesus, Jesus got... We, we tend to think in that picture that Jesus had a whip kind of hanging from his back belt and he walks into the temple and he sees all this corruption and he goes, I don't want anything to do with this. And he takes his whip out and he goes after him. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he saw it. And then the scripture says he went and made a whip. Now, what that means is, is that he looked at it and he said, hold it. And he spent time 
making the whip. He knew exactly what he was doing. He knew exactly what needed to be done. And can I just share this with you? Can you imagine money changers? So how many of you know there are a lot of guys in the temple at that particular moment? Don't you know Jesus must have been an imposing figure to have come? I mean, you would have thought two, three guys could have just dove on him and just held him down, stopped him. But there was something imposing about his size. He was a carpenter's son. There are many people who believe that he could have been a larger uh, man because of just his capacity even during the crucifixion after being beaten to a pulp and all the things that were despicably done to him. And yet he had the strength to hold his own cross on his own shoulders and carry it to his death place. This, this was no womanly man. This guy was one tough dude. And you got to understand that if you're, you're not linking up with someone who's just this effeminate sort of person, you're linking up with a man's man. Number two, Jesus was not above pointing out sin and sinners. Now, he backed down from no one. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, he called religious leaders snakes, vipers, hypocrites, and blind fools. Now, I want you to think about this. If Jesus did that today, you know what we'd say? We'd say, well, he wasn't even acting Christian. That's what we'd say. Oh, Jesus, he wasn't even acting like a Christian. I can't believe you just called him out. Well, they were. They were. And he was not above pointing it out. We're, we're, these, are the, these are the men that Jesus is calling. Number three, Jesus was not above showing some emotion. When he was coming into Jerusalem, the Bible said that he wept when he saw. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, would I not like I think it even says like a mother hen had gathered her chicks. Would I not have gathered you? And the Bible says that he wept. He showed great emotion. Number four, we know that Jesus stood on eternal truth. See, the reason Jesus could lose his cool and not sin was because he knew what right what was righteous and what was not. Our problem is, guys, we get mad over unrighteous things. See, we get mad when things don't go our way. We get mad when somehow it doesn't work out like we want it to work out or when people aren't doing what we want to do. And, and so we get mad at unrighteous things and that, therefore we are led into sin by that anger. But I'm telling you, Jesus stood on eternal truth so that when he saw, when he saw things that were not righteous, he would get mad at the right thing. See, we want to we want to please everybody. We want to stand on our sales techniques. And, and, and I've seen this in the South more times than I can count. Well, you know, my daddy did this and my daddy did that. Your daddy almost lost his family. And it's time we grew up new daddies. We pay more homage to our Southern heritage than we do to Jesus. Number five, Jesus knew when to apply grace. He knew when to correct and he knew when to apply grace. The woman at the well with multiple husbands. He was able to work with her in a gracious way. The woman caught in adultery. He never condoned the sin, but he also saw impure motives of the accusers. He knew how to apply grace appropriately. Number six, Jesus always knew where his strength came from. Jesus wasn't a self-made man. In fact, he says, I can do nothing of myself. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. 
What the Father does, the Son does. See, unfortunately, many a man lets their arrogance get the best of them. Jesus had the capacity to say, I'm nothing. Everything you see about me has come from my Father. Number seven, Jesus spent a lot of time in prayer. Do you understand that? This man's man spent a lot of time on his knees. It's hard for today's men to embrace that. Almost seems, I guess, to today's man to be weakness to suggest that. But Jesus spent a lot of time doing just that. So the question is, what men do we want to look like? Which ones do we want to embrace? The truth is, Jesus is the epitome of a real man. But the problem is that none of us are born like Jesus. In fact, the case could be made that a lot of the reason why we men are like we are is because we didn't get what we got from Jesus. We got what we got from Adam. And as you'll recall in Genesis chapter 3, Adam is bailing out on his responsibility to lead and to cover spiritually his new wife Eve. Think about this. When the serpent comes along and begins to entice Eve to partake of the fruit, Adam, who's not on the other side of the garden somewhere, a lot of people think Adam was out, you know, doing whatever guys do. You know, he was out playing golf or he was out you know, doing his hobby and he wasn't there. No, the Bible says clearly that he was right there in that vicinity. And so the serpents wooing Eve and their Adam stands passively. So, so at the moment she needed his leadership and strength, he abandoned his role as protector. Now I want to, I want to just say something to the ladies at this point, Adam was passive and Adam needed to step up and to give spiritual leadership and protection. But the problem in some households is that if Eve had wanted that fruit and Adam said no and took his place, there would have been the first fight in Madison Square Garden. Ladies, you've been praying that your men would step up. When they do, remember that. But Adam became the first passive follower. And what happens? He, he, he starts the blame game. When God shows up, everybody starts pointing fingers. Well, the woman, she made me do it. Well, the woman says, well, there is the devil. The devil made me do it. And they're all pointing fingers every which way. Guys, listen to me. Sin is passed on through our seed. But I believe God is wanting a new class of men to pass on righteousness. God is raising up new men. We can start new family trees and we can begin to pass on righteousness and strength. Jesus came to be the second Adam. Think about his challenges. Think about how he was in the garden of Gethsemane under this stress and pressure. And, and yet he, he doesn't blame. He doesn't. He doesn't uh, throw aside, but he he has the ability to press through one of the most incredibly difficult moments any man would face. Think about how Judas betrayed him and the hurt that must have been there. And yet he had the capacity to say things like, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Peter draws his sword, cuts off, you know, the uh, the uh, Roman soldier's ear. And Jesus had the courage to look at Peter who had a sword in his hand and say to him, put the sword away. Put the sword away. Jesus' response was totally different than the first Adam. And how was it different? We're going to go through this real fast. Number one, he rejected being passive. Guys, spiritual leadership can start from you. 
to arise and say to your families, we shall go to the house of the Lord. You could say to your friends and your co-workers, hey, you know what? The house of the Lord is where my family needs to be. It's where my heart needs to be. He wasn't passive. Number two, he accepted his responsibility. It wasn't on anyone else's shoulders. It's not. Listen, we are in a society right now that we're handing everything off to teachers in public school. We're handing it off to pastors at churches. We're handing everything off to someone else. And God's saying it is time we bore the burden and took the responsibility of those things we have the greatest influence over. Jesus accepted that. Number three, he demonstrated courage. Do you understand that when everyone looks at you and rolls their eyes when you start being spiritual, I know the first thing is you want to say, I know, I know, it's weird, it's dumb, but I, I, I need to do it. Listen, they're the ones that are going to be married four, five, six times. They're the ones whose lives are going to crash. Don't you apologize for putting into motion spiritual things that will let you cross the finish line. He demonstrated some courage. I'm not saying that I've been the best at this through the years, but I've got a little fruit behind me. I could have had a lot more if I'd have learned a few things earlier. But I can tell you this, that kids that serve the Lord and, and impact in the family tree and everybody watching you, you may not see your affirmation in weeks or months or a year or two, but I guarantee you, I've been walking with God for 32 years now. And I can tell you this year, 32 years later, I've received more affirmation I've received more uh, uh, thanks and, and we appreciate you and, and all the things that you always long to hear as a man. I've been hearing it after 32 years, but it took 32 years of courage to do the right thing. You can't do the right thing for a week. It's like tithing for a week and wanting the heavens to open. You got to do the right thing all the time, every day, 24-7, when people are rolling their eyes at you and they're making fun at you and they're calling you holy roller and, and, and they're saying, you, you, you know, you're just, you're, you're wimpy and, and, and you're a loser. You got to rise up and begin to say that, let me tell you, the trophies aren't handed out tomorrow. They're handed out at the end. It's not who gets the trophy next week. It's who gets it when God says it's all done. Number four, Jesus knew God's ways were best. God's way was best. Jesus knew God's way was best. He knew it. He knew no matter what took place, if they crucify me, they crucify me, but God's way is best. If they don't pay attention to me, they don't pay attention to me, but God's way is best. God's way is best. And, and guys, if we'll get a hold of this, I'm not pounding you, I'm telling you, man, you in this room right now, in the face of what our nation is currently experiencing, you have the opportunity to be a wall builder and a gap stander. You have the ability to be the one that they talk about a century from now as one who stepped up and part of the generation that did their best to keep a nation from crumbling. Some of you know I've been praying. I've told the guys I've been praying for a hundred men. A hundred men. I don't even think a hundred's that many, really. But I've been praying for a hundred. I just felt like when I got a hundred, I could begin praying for maybe two hundred. But I've been praying for a hundred men. God's not looking, hear me now, God's not looking for good men. 
He's looking for gap standers. Those who will repair broken walls. Those who will stand in gaps. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that our country is in desperate need for real men. Listen, if you're aspiring to be Tiger Woods, you've aspired for the wrong thing. If you'd aspired to be our governor, you've aspired for the wrong thing. I'm not saying God can't redeem and forgive. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying He can't redeem and forgive each one of you. He certainly can. I'm telling you, we need to raise our sights up and aspire for something a little bit greater than what we've been shown is real manhood. Real manhood is not the number of women you bed in a week. Real manhood is whether you can stay with one and be a father to your kids and walk them through to the end. I'm just telling you, I don't care how low Tiger shoots this weekend. I respect the ones that have stood by their families for decades. You want to know what I respect? That's what I respect. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that our country is in desperate, desperate need. And I want the Lord to find many of those men right here. There was a 1960s game show that, that some of you have seen, and, and they've tried to do spinoffs on it all through the years. And the game was called To Tell the Truth. And they'd bring three guys out and they'd stand up there and they'd give them a name. Maybe they were a famous person and they'd say, I'm, I'm John Q. Public. And the second one would go, I'm John Q. Public. And the third one would go, I'm John Q. Public. And the whole point of the show was to ask these three questions until finally, usually the celebrity uh, uh, panelist would then try to guess which one was the real John Q. Public. And the last thing that the host would always say is this, would the real John Q. Public please stand up? And you remember what they used to do? They used to kind of, until finally the real one stood up. And this is what I think. I think we've reached a point where, where the Spirit of the Lord is saying this, will the real Will the real men, will my real men, please, please, please stand up. I looked for a man among them who would make up the wall and stand in the gap. But I found no one. I want everybody to stand with me, will you please? I want everyone to stand.